No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. This is the second in a series of interviews about rural Canadian healthcare. Last episode, we talked about the BC Rural Health Network, a collective of citizen-led collaborators that have organized to put pressure on the government and basically get folks to pay attention to the unique needs in rural healthcare, specifically in rural British Columbia. Another part of putting pressure on the government comes from the physicians themselves, They are fully aware of the wait times, the lack of access to a family doctor, and the travel times some rural and remote Canadians need to drive in order to see a specialist or maybe even get basic care. This is not what they signed up for. The Society of Rural Physicians of Canada, along with the College of Family Physicians of Canada, released the Rural Roadmap, Report Card on Access to Healthcare, in rural Canada. That was released in April 2021. The implementation committee was made up of representatives from 15 different organizations, all with the interest in driving change, including the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, the Association of Faculties of Medicine, Indigenous Physicians of Canada, and the Canadian Association for Rural and Remote Nursing. Two representatives, the co-chairs from that implementation committee, spoke with me about why the report card was done, what the results have been, and what the path forward is for rural Canadian healthcare. Dr. Ruth Wilson is a practicing family physician in Yellowknife and a professor emerita of family medicine at Queen's University, where she was chair of the department. 
Before her 29 years of Queens, she spent 12 years in rural and remote family practice, including anesthesia and obstetrics in Bella Coola, BC, Sioux Lookout, Ontario, and Bay Verte, Newfoundland. She served as chair of the Ontario Family Health Network. She is a past president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. She co-chaired the Advancing Rural Family Medicine Collaborative Task Force and co-chaired the Rural Roadmap Implementation Committee. In 2015, Dr. Wilson was named a member of the Order of Canada. In 2010, she was named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. In 2021, she was given the Rural Leadership Award by the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. Dr. James Rourke was an active rural family physician, including obstetrics and emergency work in Godridge, Ontario, for 25 years with his wife and medical partner, Dr. Leslie Rourke. Their practice was one of the primary rural family medicine teaching sites at Western University. Their most exciting and long-lasting success has been translating evidence for use in everyday family practice with the Rourke Baby Record, led by Dr. Leslie Rourke and Dr. Denny LeDuc, a system that many Canadian doctors and other healthcare professionals use for well visits for infants and children from one week old to five years of age. Since finishing as the Dean of Medicine at Memorial University of Newfoundland in 2016, Dr. Rourke has been able to step away from a heavy management load and refocus on several major interests. He has been chair of the Committee on Accreditation of Canadian Medical Schools and is currently chair of the Aspire to Excellence, a program that awards exemplary medical school programs, and he provides sought-after advice on rural health, healthcare restructuring, medical education, and research. Why you undertook this report card? What were you hoping to achieve and what purpose were you hoping that it would serve? Well, this report card builds on work that we've been doing for seven or eight years now, looking at access to healthcare for rural communities. I must say our particular focus has been on family doctors, and we both know that healthcare is more than family doctors. But these days, of course, everyone's aware of the shortage of family doctors, not just in rural areas, but across the country. Uh, and because we are both family doctors ourselves, that was our emphasis. And uh, that group, the Rural Roadmap, uh, Advancing Rural Family Medicine Collaborative, uh, put out a roadmap for what we might do to improve access to health care and in particular access to family physicians in rural, uh, remote and Indigenous communities in Canada. Um, and uh, after we put out that report, we thought, well, no point in just putting out a report. We better see what progress has been made. And uh, Jim Rourke, you... Uh, you came on board as the co-chair at that point when we started looking at implementing and reporting on the progress or lack of progress that had been made. Maybe I'll add a couple of things here. So access to health care in rural Canada has been a challenge for decades that's getting worse now instead of better. So it's a particularly important time to talk about this now. But going back a little over a decade with the development of the Rural Roadmap for Action Directions, which was a collaborative study between the College of Family Physicians of Canada and the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada set out a roadmap with four directions and 20 actions to actually have a cohesive plan to try to make a difference. 
But of course, the report on its own doesn't really make a difference. So that's when Ruth and I got asked to chair the implementation committee to try to make get these recommendations implemented, or at least moved along instead of just sitting on a shelf. And that implementation committee was a much broader thing. We needed more than the Society of Rural Physicians, the College of Family Physicians. So it was actually about 10 different groups that spanned the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, because they're at the heart of rural Canada, um, Healthcare Canada, which is the hospital's organization, the IPAC, the Indigenous Physicians uh, Association of Canada, because that group is so important because we're short of Indigenous physicians. Indigenous issues are huge problems in, in rural Canada, access to care, so we needed that voice. And also the, the uh, Canadian Association of, um, of Medical Staff Recruiters, so those are people try to get people into the rural communities to work there. We needed that voice. The Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, because small-town emergency department care is so important as an emergency access to care, and the Canadian Association of Rural and Remote Nursing. So it covered a whole lot of different groups trying to look at that. So then we used those groups to leverage and what can we move forward, and, and we've seen some things actually move forward on this. You know, if you look at what you're doing, unless you look at are you making progress and measure it, then you can't really see what you need to do. So that's why the report card was to look at what areas are actually doing pretty well at and what areas do we need to really continue to push hard to get there. And I suppose now with the last two years, what areas are we backsliding on, which is also a bigger concern. We might talk about some of the progress in the areas. So I think that's been a really good thing. And then talk about what we need to do to get that last uh, mile done in the journey, uh, which is the most difficult mile. Maybe I could mention one thing where we're seeing a bit of progress and also some challenges. Uh, that's in the whole question of rural patient transfers. You mentioned uh, earlier when we were chatting about how people have to travel hundreds of miles to get to health care, particularly tertiary or secondary care at some of the bigger, fancier facilities. And, you know, in Canada, for many parts of Canada, we have really excellent helicopter, fixed-wing paramedic services that can fly in and scoop people off highways or scoop people out of nursing stations and, and bring them to uh, larger centers. So we have a lot of the um, infrastructure, but we are certainly lacking some of the policies that we need to make things better. Uh, you may have seen a recent article about uh, a family physician in Arviat Nunavut who had to wait 30 hours to get his uh, infant patient who had RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, out of Nunavut, and it was because Manitoba had closed its borders to Nunavut. And Nunavut doesn't have a pediatric ICU. This baby had to go somewhere. Uh, and eventually he, he was able to get the baby to Edmonton. And Manitoba reversed its stand and are now taking it. But those kind of um, jurisdictional policies where health sciences centers don't see themselves as responsible for the catchment area they serve, but instead feel that they can limit their um, availability to the people that are close to home, really disadvantages rural areas. During COVID, we saw all kinds of barriers fall down. Uh, we saw patients from Saskatchewan transferred uh, to Manitoba. We saw people from Manitoba transferred to, uh, to Ontario. So we know we can do it. Um, and that's one of the things that we're, we're pushing hard on and seeing a high degree of interest in fixing some of those uh, interjurisdictional border policy problems.
And just to pick up on that point, I think it's changing the whole mindset of, and Ruth and I both, uh, in, in our years of real practice, Ruth is still in real practice, had situations where if that person had their accident or their heart attack or whatever it was that needed tertiary care in the big city, the big city hospital would say, well, we have to find room for you. You're here. But if that person was in the country, they could easily say, oh, I'm sorry, we're full. And it was an altogether different way of thinking. And what we're trying to make healthcare institutions look at is what region are they responsible for and look at the whole region, not just the city they support. And we recognize that especially pediatric intensive care is desperate straits right now, but we need that, that regional concept so that people aren't stuck out with the least resources and the least ability to transfer the patient to somewhere, anywhere that can help them out. So we think it's that mindset of regional responsibility that is so vital for these uh, health science centers to become not health science centers, but health science networks that serve their region. With the patient transfer Though I, I like your thinking, uh, Dr. Wilson, with the helicopter in using those already in place resources. However, the cost, though, for a patient, for instance, a vulnerable patient that doesn't have a lot of resource, money, time, any of those things to drive or to pay for you know, a helicopter ride or an ambulance ride or any of those things, I guess, how do you measure? When it comes to the most vulnerable in rural communities, is that the measurement? Is that you know the measurement of the people that are the most at risk or how do you measure? Yeah, so you're right. I've been concentrating on the emergency life and limb situation because there is work to be done there. And those, um, those transfer are by they are they are publicly funded although interestingly there's a fair amount of philanthropic donation goes into funding for example the stars system which works in the western provinces i was surprised how much charitable donation funds that rather than public money but uh, you're quite right for routine appointments or for people that drive down uh, to the big city for their for their tests the um, funding to cover that varies by by jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions have travel grants, others do not. Uh, and of course, the risk, I, I've just driven up to Yellowknife myself. I'm well aware of the risks of driving on winter roads right now. Uh, the bison scared me all the way up uh, the last seven hours of driving to Yellowknife from the Alberta border. So it's a, it's a treacherous journey and not one to be taken lightly. To pick up on those comments, Ruth, I think it's the impact on the patient, the family that can be so enormous. And there are things that have to be seen in the big tertiary care centers. There's no question about that. But there's a lot of things that, uh, for example, if a specialist comes out to a rural area every so often makes visits there, they can see 30, 40, 50, 60 patients in their visit that would otherwise have had to come in to see that specialist. So having outreach services is vitally important. The other thing that we've seen with COVID is that there's a whole lot more virtual care happened. And, and it's not a substitute for hands-on face-to-face care when it's needed, but so m- many patients were going in for relatively routine follow-up that is now being done virtually and almost as well Uh, and saving a lot of that risk of transportation, the disruption. So that's been a a really good thing. But the final mile on this is trying to make sure that in the larger rural communities, and even the smaller ones, the services are there so people can access the primary care they need and many of the secondary services by putting 
the rural general's family physician who's got office skills, but also additional skills, be they looking after emergency care or maternity care or, or other social cultural indigenous care, special skills that way. Um, we're really trying to work at getting those people into those rural communities. And to do that needs end-to-end planning, you know, from before medical school all the way through medical school, residency training, and then recruitment and retention. And in that regard, the, the report card would suggest we've made pretty good progress in getting more rural and Indigenous people into medical schools, but still a ways to go. Pretty good progress at getting some of the medical schools to have a routine and an extended length of training time in rural communities for their for the medical students to get them interested in going into this wonderful career choice. I think Ruth and I both believe, believe that. And then some rural family medicine training streams where they do most of the training in rural and regional communities instead of in the big centers. So they get trained by doctors in those rural areas with the skills needed for those rural areas. And then they're three quarters of the way there. The biggest barrier has been that last 25% making the rural practice supported and, and, and funded in ways that make it attractive for the new graduates to start practice and the old graduates to stay there. And that even now needs a lot more yeah, work. Yeah, family doctors are not looking for the uh, older style of, of medicine. And I, I know this through direct contact with many of them. They're not looking to set up a business and charge fee-for-service and rent an office and hire their staff. They're looking for a turnkey operation where they can uh, come in and be well-supported with a team approach. Primary care and family medicine is a team sport and needs working together with nurses and nurse practitioners for sure, and then other health professionals as they're available, pharmacists, dietitians, social workers, and so on. Uh, and new family physicians are also looking for payment models that um, that are more stable and provide them with some uh, benefits and the ability to have vacation. They want to be part of an organization where they're supported and can make sure if they're sick or on maternity leave that there will be people to look after their practice. So all of those practice environment changes uh, need to happen, and they vary across, again, across the country and how uh, how much progress we're making in that regard. But these are things that governments can actually choose to make a difference. So just talk about the infrastructure and the team support in the rural areas we found that pretty much places that are going to be successful recruiting are going to provide a functional office space and, and, and equipment and all the things you need to be a working doctor. The, the place that are able to recruit and retain provide a well-supported teamwork environment for those doctors. And the governments and places that think that they can get away without providing the infrastructure and the team support it's just not working. It's just not going to work there. So they've got to step up that game and, and make that attractive because we know there's a lot of trainees coming through that are really interested in rural, but it needs to be into that kind of warm and supportive and funded environment. And uh, governments can make that choice. They need to make that choice. Doesn't some of that burden fall on the municipalities and the actual you know, cities and towns in the rural uh, space across Canada, creating an environment where people of different cultures and people of different ethnicities and and different beliefs can live and work together in a community and building the infrastructure and the programs and the the education and the inclusivity in those communities so they're attractive to younger people 
because they're looking for all of those things. And what we found, especially when I was in Southwest Ontario, that the municipalities that were heavily engaged in supporting this were much more uh, successful than those that figured, well, it should just happen. And I got a lot of calls from the mayors in terms of what needed to be done to be engaged and working in this and building infrastructure and supports. But it can't just happen fall on the municipalities themselves because many municipalities in the rural areas are quite poor. They don't have the resources of the bigger cities financially or personnel-wise. And it also needs a system approach where the, the whole recruiting team is working together, linking the university, the government, the municipalities, and, and the physicians and other staff in those areas. And, and it needs a cohesive recruitment effort. And that's where we see that pays off as well. You know, uh, 25% of doctors in Canada are were educated in medicine outside of Canada. Uh, and in rural areas, that number is even greater. I just looked at um, the anesthesia workforce in rural areas, for example, and uh, over a third of the anesthesia workforce is, is internationally educated. So if there's not a welcoming environment, a mosque, uh, a religious community, a supportive ethno-racial community. Doctors who are recruited to rural areas may may stay for a short time, but then leave uh, if they don't uh, if they're not able to integrate their family and their their uh, their their kids uh, into the system. And if they're not welcomed, then we're not able to take advantage of the skills and uh, attributes that they bring. Do you find that there's an appetite at the provincial level when you um, you know look across the country? I know it's very different depending on the sitting. Uh, government of the day, do they understand how critical healthcare is? I mean, really, I, is that part of your ultimate challenge always is is to present to them how critical the issues are in, in rural health that they need to address? You know, I think the public is doing that right now. The number of media stories about the shortage of family doctors, not just in rural areas at the moment, of course, but across the country and what that means to individual people trying to navigate the healthcare system. Just some heartbreaking stories. I believe that healthcare has got to be top of mind. We saw what COVID did to not just healthcare providers, but all of us, you know, what we went through during the, the really tough times, how it affected us psychologically, how it affected children, how it affected businesses. And uh, we see the burnout and, uh, and so on that uh, has really affected uh, nurses and doctors in particular. We've got a, a whole lot of rebuilding to do. And then coupled with that, this triple-demic of, uh, of the flu and COVID and RSV that's hitting particularly uh, kids and babies right now. I believe we have the attention of the politicians, and not we, but but uh, all Canadians are making their voices heard pretty loudly. I believe we the attention of the politicians that the system is in crisis. I believe we have had the neglect of the politicians until the COVID crisis of the healthcare system. Our system really doesn't have any spare capacity for any surges of any kind whatsoever. And we're seeing that with the pediatric children's hospital crisis right now with the uh, surge in respiratory illnesses and ICUs being filled up, surge being canceled. But, but that goes for the whole system. There's no no extra support there. And the thing that I've observed is that we have done a very poor job of healthcare planning in Canada. It was interesting. I was at a World Health Organization meeting on how governments and their healthcare systems. And the main thing coming out of that meeting was that governments need to have a public plan with measurable targets for their healthcare. And that within that plan, it needs a 
separate subplan for the rural and indigenous populations. We've got a complicated thing with 13 provincial and provinces and territories in the federal government, but none of them seems to have a public plan for health care, let alone a specific plan for rural health care. And they certainly, they, it seems they don't even want measurable targets because they're afraid that they won't meet them. But if you don't have a plan and measurable targets, it's like going on a trip. How are you going to get to where you want to go if you don't even have a plan and a roadmap of how to get there? That's what the roadmap set out to do. But I, I, I think part of the reason we're in the mess we are in Canada because we don't have a public plan, we don't have public targets, and our healthcare system is not performing as well as it should in terms of the international comparisons because of a lack of leadership in, in my mind. Um, and it's a complex system. I'm not saying it's simple to do. But um, show me the plan. Um, when we ask that, oh, well, we're trying to respond. And it's like knee-jerk responses to the crisis of the day. We need a lot better planning. And that's what we're trying to push with this rural roadmap. And I, I hope that the governments with this crisis start to develop a more solid approach to planning that's needs-based, research-based. We'll talk about research in a minute, too, in rural health research. But research-based, evidence-informed and meets the needs of Canadians better than what we're doing now. They're still suffering from cuts that were made to um, hospital beds and medical school enrollment in the late 90s, believe it or not, like 25 years ago. Uh, and, and that came about through uh, cherry-picking some aspects of, um, of data and, uh, and this fascination with cost-cutting. Uh, so we have a very low doctor-population ratio compared to the rest of the world. We are really tight with hospital beds across this country. We need we need much better uh, surge capacity. Uh, and, and that can be traced back um, a long way now to policy decisions that were made on the basis of a, of a poor use of data. It's one of the things that we were really pushing um, in the report was a, a rural health research agenda in Canada. And, uh, you know, compared to several other countries, Canada had, despite being a huge rural country, had put very little money into doing rural health research. And we know that applying big urban city research to rural problems just, it doesn't work. <laughs> the context is so different. And so we've been pushing that as this report. That's one of the areas that there seems to be good movement on. The Canadian Institute of Health Research have now listed rural as one of the areas of focus that they need to focus on. And the policy and health uh, research planning branch has actually come out with some calls for rural-focused research. So uh, I think we can see some more uh, community-based research by people in rural communities, not just the doctors, but the community leaders, looking at what can work, uh, how do we know if it works, and if it works, how do we scale it up to other places? Because uh, in Canada, I've been amazed that every place has got some things that they figured out how to work and other things don't work, but we don't know what doesn't work or works in other places, so we can't learn. And and so if we can share that through uh, research mobilization, we'd be a whole lot better off. I was going to ask that because there's lots of research that can be done, right? Like, I mean, research is critical. Research is important. But if no one is amplifying that research and no one is is taking it, and saying we need to do something or a government organization or a ministry of health isn't recognizing or as you rightly stated that it's on a shelf somewhere then all of that 
resource time and, and all of the things that you are pushing to draw attention to is in vain. So I, I guess my question is, you know, when you do a report card like you did, which is brilliant because that means, you know, how did I do? It's measurable. It's accountable. What are you hoping to achieve in the next little bit with research and with getting attention and amplifying and and getting the public's interest too? One of the things I've lived by is never waste a crisis. I think we're in a crisis now and the crisis hopefully will spur some positive action. And we may see some leapfrogging of result from uh, an action from one community to another. People often say to me, oh, well, we don't want the provinces to be competing for the rural doctors who are there. In other words, we'll just go the lowest common denominator and don't raise that. I say, bring on the competition, increase the uh, support and funding for rural healthcare services, make it attractive, and then we'll attract more students and residents into this field to become rural doctors. So if if through a bit of competition between places that, that it increases the whole bar, that's actually a good thing in making, making uh, more doctors who will be uh, rural doctors and other rural healthcare workers in the future possible. So as I think that that's good. You've both had a long career in family medicine, as you both uh, pointed out. I want to ask you both sides of the story. So what do you find the most troubling in healthcare right now, in, in family health, in rural family health? But also, what do you find the most encouraging? The joys are tremendous, and I'll speak about them in a moment. The challenges are getting access for my patients. So the amount of time I have to spend on forms and phone calls and paperwork um, to get my patient where my patient needs to be, uh, to get the authorization or the funding or the appointment or the coordination of the appointments. All that work so that people don't fall through the cracks. That That's probably the greatest frustration of my job. The joys, however, are tremendous. Um, you know, the ability to accompany people throughout their lives as they um, try and prevent illness, try and stay healthy, sometimes fall ill, uh, but, but being privileged to be part of that um, experience with them leads to such deep and rewarding um, interactions that uh, can't imagine a better career. It's, um, it's one that is uh, deeply satisfying to me. I look forward to going to work every day. I look forward to hearing the stories. Uh, each person who comes in has something new and interesting about their lives, and, uh, and I really enjoy hearing about that as much as I enjoy thinking about their sore knee or their... <laughs> or whatever else, or their failing marriage, or whatever it is that, that we're talking about today. Uh, and and I, I really, uh, as Jim said, the role of the rural generalist is terrific. Being able to have uh, skills that are technical, like being able to deliver a baby or give an anesthetic is very satisfying. It's also very satisfying to um, have people realize that they can bring any problem to me, and I'm not going to say, oh, I don't do that. Well said, Ruth. I'm uh, retired from uh, uh, rural practice now, but what a career for the things that you mentioned. And family medicine itself is, is is unique because you get to follow people through their life's journey and you get to understand them. And once you understand what's motivating or what's behind their issues, it becomes such a, a wonderful, rich experience for the patient and the doctor. That, that doctor-patient relationship or patient-physician relationship uh, becomes a part of the anchor following people through the many stages of their life. And then in rural, you get to do a little bit of everything. As one of my colleagues, Dr. Neil and Goddard, said, 
Jim, we get to practice the whole textbook of medicine. And and you really do have that that broad joy of, of a challenge every day. Um, I used to try to figure every day, what did I learn today from my practice? Keep my learning curve ahead of my forget curve. Uh, and every day there were things to learn and do differently and, and, and stimulate. And then if one was involved with uh, helping residents and, and, and students learn about medicine, rural medicine, that again become an extra reward. And we're seeing so much more of that than, than when Ruth and I went through that so many rural doctors now involved in teaching and so many of the students and residents are learning rural medicine in rural practices, in rural communities. And I think that's going to build the future of people who are solidly interested in it. It's a career like no other. Uh, I wouldn't want to give it back for anything. But what's hard for me to see is, really, we're still talking about how to make the support rural practice. Like We've known how to do this for a decade of what was needed, but the governments have not made enough of priority to do that, to support either family medicine in general or support rural, rural practice. And, the, and now we're suffering from that as a population. And I think that the evidence is in that if we've got rural doctors and family doctors in total, that the healthcare system runs more effectively, is more efficient, and costs less. And there's pretty solid evidence about that. So the governments and everybody just needs to up the game and help get through this crisis. And, and it's going to take an investment to get that return investment back in people's better health and a better healthcare system. I think in Canada, we deserve a healthcare system that works. And it's troubling to see all the cracks in the system right now. So it, it does need a big full court press. I was going to ask if either one of you have ever seen the system this bad. You know, I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever seen it this bad. And part of it is that medicine can do so much more than it used to be able to do. My expectations for the care my patients should get are higher than they used to be. You know, it used to be, if well, I can remember when I was first in practice and someone had a heart attack, we used to think about whether it was better to keep them at home or whether we should move them to the hospital because really all we could do in the hospital was monitor them and give them some oxygen and maybe morphine for the pain. But now we have, you know, medications and stents and open heart surgery. And um, so, no, we're definitely not leaving you at home with your heart attack anymore. Cancer, the same way, we have such specific individualized treatments for cancer that were just not even thought of uh, in the past. So, so many more um, interventions that can that can save lives, and we want those, and people deserve those. Uh, so that puts that puts pressure on the healthcare system for sure. You know, I don't recall the long the long wait times in the emergency department, the overcrowding um, that we're seeing right now. I, I do think it is unprecedented. A couple of points I, I, I'd make on that. I think th there's so many cracks in the system right now, but at the center of it. Is, the, is family medicine and rural family medicine. And we're seeing that that uh, in the 1980s, family medicine was in a bad shape. People were looking at it and saying, God, that's the last thing I want to do. The number of students choosing that as a career choice dropped down to about 25%, if I recall correctly, somewhere around that, and it needs to be around 50 and the big bright light was the development of family health teams in Ontario, which was a team-based model to which Ruth Wilson deserves a huge amount of credit for getting this across. And that revived family medicine's way to go forward. And then it only went so far. 
And then government sort of said, oh, well, maybe we don't need to keep funding this. We're making some progress. And in, in Ontario, for example, they've frozen that. We haven't got health teams funded across the province. And had that happened, we would have been a much better spot than we are today. Today, with the shortage of family doctors, what happens is, is if people don't have a family doctor, they have to go to the eMERGE. Is it any surprise that the emerges are chock-a-block full? Well, patients have no choice. They have to care somehow for these things. Patients are late getting diagnosed with cancer and other problems, so they end up in hospitals. No wonder hospitals are overrun. Patients see the specialist. The specialist says, well, I've worked you up. Things are good. You will need follow-up with your hypertension or heart disease or whatever. You need appointment six months with your family doctor. And the person says, I don't have my family doctor. They retired. No one's replaced them. Well, I'll see you back in six months myself. That means they can't see a new patient. So no wonder they've got backlogs there. So the system is cracking from many directions. But part of the answer is addressing the issue to get more family doctors everywhere, and especially in in rural practice, and make them more efficient. Because as Ruth said, uh, the, the family doctors I talked to are drowning in paperwork, most of which does not have to be done by them. So let the doctors be the doctors, have the team to do the other bit of stuff that they can do equally as well or better. And, and then we can harness the value of the doctors without having to have like a ton more doctors. We need more, but not a ton more family doctors if we utilize them more appropriately. And I don't think there's a family doctor I know who would rather do more paperwork than see patients. So I, I think there's hope for the future. It will take planning and funding to actually make the system work. What would you say, uh, and this is my final question, to the folks that are listening across Canada that complain about the healthcare system, sat with their children in the emergency room, the people that are they're living you know, in the rural spaces, not getting access, you talked about the good things, the resiliency of rural communities. What's your message to those folks, those patients that are frustrated, scared? I would say, please t- tell your politician what you've been experiencing. Um, please let them know. Write them a letter, phone them. Uh, when we got some of the really needed reforms in Ontario that Jim mentioned 20 years ago, it was because members of parliament said to me the number one thing they heard from their constituents was, I can't get a family doctor. Um, if uh, If people would just let their politicians know directly uh, what they've been experiencing. I think that would be very helpful. Uh, and I think yeah, the flip side is to please, please be patient with those of us who are trying to provide health care. We are feeling the stress and strain, and uh, we're not always at our best, I'm sure. We're here, and uh, we we want to be helpful and accompany you in, in the uh, in the health and in your illness uh, as you move along. Give us your patience and uh, and expect expect that we will be there for you and we will do our best to to return that trust. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, very inspiring folks that you are. I almost teared up myself listening to you. So <laughs> I really, uh, I really appreciate it and respect what you're doing. So thank, thank you so you. much for your time today. And um, my dog saying thank you as well. <laughs> that, 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 those are very kind words, Shauna. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for amplifying our voice. keep the conversation going subscribe to the clearing a new path newsletter drop me an email follow the podcast on social media and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform clearing a new path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of katie wilhelm and the music branding is by the hankering studio
The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 